All right, everyone. All right, everyone, can you all hear me? No? It's good. Can everybody hear me? Oh, no. I don't know how to. Now we can maybe hear me. If not, I'll. Oh, I almost started talking loud. You can tell that we're, we're getting all technical now, and I actually use a microphone, which I kind of like yelling, but I'm told that not everybody can hear me. Uh, also, good morning, everyone. Uh, if you want to turn to 2 Peter chapter 2, that's going to be our primary text today. As you all know, Often on First Sunday, we address some particular theological topic uh, for the purpose of grounding our church in doctrine. Uh, today, we are going to address the broader topic of biblical discernment and healthy doctrine. Uh, and I would say that there are several reasons for us to be doing this, but not the least of which, of late, we have noted a lot of old theological error uh, being brought to the forefront in American evangelicalism. And I have had several, and by God's grace, faithful people in our church that have come across some error and have rightly deflected it. And I say, praise the Lord. Um, but it's also led to some questions about like, well, where do we draw the line between breaking fellowship with someone who is in error and with saying like, oh, you're a faithful brother, you're just wrong about this. Um, how do we work through those things and how do we maybe catch something that sneaks in? And so we're going to primarily be in 2 Peter 2, but the first thing I want to do is take us to Ephesians chapter 4, and I'm going to read from verses 11 through 16, um, and I'm just going to pray to open this up. Lord, I ask that you would be with us in this time, that you would anoint me as I speak, that I would speak in accordance with your will, in accordance with what your word has taught, uh, nothing more and nothing less than what you want me to teach today. Uh, and then be with us, Lord, may we be rooted and grounded in the truth as a church. But may we also be so full of grace and love that when we rebuke and correct, um, it is known that it is out of love as much as it can be. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so Ephesians 4, verse 11 through 16. Paul is writing to the church of Ephesus here, uh, which Ephesus, interestingly enough, when he had said goodbye to them in Acts chapter 20, one of the things he said is false teachers are going to arise among you, so be watchful. And, interesting thing, we know when Jesus addresses the church at Ephesus, in Revelation, he says, praise God, you stayed doctrinally sound. So, good news, the letter that Paul wrote in Ephesians seemed to have worked. I think it's worth paying attention to. So, in verse 11, it says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ." from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, which e with each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So first thing we're doing here is setting the goal. The goal of sound doctrine is that first of all, we would not be tossed about by every whim of doctrine that comes along. 
Can we think probably there are those who we know that every time they hear something strange on the news or some uh, supposed new teacher come along who has some new fresh revelation, that they've abandoned things that they thought they knew in order to hold to this new and trendy doctrine. Uh, we've heard this. We don't want to be that. Uh, and also, have you noticed, as that happens, the kingdom of, not, the kingdom of God is not being built. When somebody comes across some new thing and they're all excited about it and they simply go to the new thing from another new thing to another new thing and they're tossed about by every wind of doctrine rather than building the kingdom of God. Our goal, brothers and sisters, is to have steadiness and then to build the kingdom of God as a result. Everybody's with me? Cool. Well, I think I might have skipped the slide. Uh, but we see in, have you guys heard of, you've probably heard me mention, the State of Theology Survey. Um, have you all heard this? Cool. Can we go back? There you go. You're there. You're there, man. Good work. Uh, the State of Theology survey addresses several things. Every two years, Ligonier Ministries does this survey, and they ask some key doctrinal questions, both of non-believers, uh, I would say of the populace at large, and then of people who claim to be evangelical Christians. And then they do this every two years. They ask some of the same questions in order to kind of get a gauge of where is the American church at. I will tell you, uh, I look at that survey to say, what's going on? What do I need to make sure I'm teaching to so that we don't fall into error, right? Um, well, one thing that came up in, the, in the, uh, the survey results that just came out about a month ago was one, 48% of those who claim to be evangelicals deny God's immutability. Now, a couple of years ago, we taught on the doctrine of immutability, which is the idea that God does not change in his nature. I want you to think for a moment. This is directly related to the nature of God, and 48% of evangelicals deny the teaching of Scripture that God does not change. This should concern us greatly. Uh, similarly, we see 71% of evangelicals deny the sin nature. Can you all imagine how this would create some really serious doctrinal problems if you deny that man has a sin nature, that he is bent towards sin and needs to have his heart redeemed, that he can't just make better decisions. He has to repent and believe the gospel. Can we understand that if 71% of evangelicals are denying the sin nature, that the very heart of the gospel is being damaged? Continuing on, 56% affirm the worship of false religions. 56% believe Oh, this is of evangelicals, or people who claim to be, that is, believe that God accepts worship from other beliefs such as Islam. Can we understand how this is a pretty big problem? At no time in scripture does God accept false belief. He rejects all forms of syncretism, and he wants proper worship of him and him alone. We also see that 43%, once again, of evangelicals deny the deity of Christ. Now, this is one of the things that's so central. I, get, I mean, all of these are central things. You cannot be a Christian and deny that Jesus is God. It is as simple as that. And so we just have to acknowledge there is a very serious doctrinal problem even within what is called modern evangelicalism. And I've got to tell you, historically, the term evangelical meant someone who actually believed what Scripture said. Uh, generally, you would have people who were Christians who would maybe say, well, yeah, sure, generally I'm a Christian and whatever. And then you would have evangelicals were the, that were the ones that actually believed it. You would have cultural Christians, but then evangelical used to meant these are the guys that really believe the truth. So when we have 71% of evangelicals denying a key doctrine of the faith, can we just say that means that the actual evangelicals 
are a very small number. And that is a very big problem. So continuing on, would you imagine then uh, that those might be people who are being tossed about by every wind of doctrine? All right, so let's continue. I'm going to define some terms. And as you all know, I do long introductions for short sermons. So by means of this long introduction, I want to give us a quick overview of doctrinal words that we might be using. Generally, when we talk about teaching doctrine, at the very center of things is the gospel. Uh, this is where we get from Romans 10 and many other passages. Yes? Oh, I forgot to mention this. Yes. According to a Barna study recently, uh, I think it was in May, 37% of pastors do not hold to a biblical worldview. You guys understand the problem with this, right? Um, it might be indicative of why we have such bad doctrine among the people. If 37% of pastors do not believe what the Bible says, they are not going to teach it accurately to their people. And I can tell you, I, I have run into this myself. Man, oh man, by God's grace, there are still a lot of faithful pastors. And they're pastoring churches about this size or smaller. Some of them that are in the 100 and 150 degree, 100 degree, 150 person range, right? And certainly some bigger ones. But can I just tell you, by God's, this is how I get encouraged. I keep running across these pastors. We're pastoring a church with 20 people or 30 people or 50 people. And they're hustling to get by. They're running some other side business so they can pay their bills. And they're doing God's work. Brothers and sisters, there are still faithful pastors out there. But they don't get book deals. And they don't get that broader influence very often. And so we have to see when 37% of pastors are denying the biblical orthodoxy of Christianity, uh, we can see why the rest of Christendom is suffering. But brothers and sisters, I know I keep saying this, we're working to change that. So uh, by means of all that, I'm going to define some more terms here. So we have, of course, the gospel. When we say the gospel, we, we, we talk about it every Sunday. The gospel is central. It is the atoning work of Christ, uh, the good news that he died to pay our sin debt, that he rose from the dead. Repent and believe in him. Put him in charge of your life. That's the gospel. And typically when we're talking about doctrine, that becomes the central thing, right? Uh, you have to believe that to be a Christian at all. Uh, if you're a Christian, it means you have believed the gospel, and that is simple. At its very core, you might not know about the doctrine of the Trinity in detail, but you understand that Jesus is God, that he died for your sins, and he rose from the dead. Central, right? And so we're going to talk about this a little bit more. That's, that's the gospel. You can't get that wrong and be a Christian. Beyond that, we have what we would call the essentials of the faith, or orthodoxy. Orthodoxy simply means right belief. Orthodoxy is those set of beliefs that directly relate to the gospel. These are the things that you cannot deny and remain a Christian. I don't anticipate that every new believer immediately understands the doctrine of the Trinity. But you shouldn't be denying the doctrine of the Trinity because you can't do that and stay a Christian. Does this make sense? It's that next little concentric circle of very important things. You can't deny things like, oh, I don't know, uh, the authority of Scripture. Uh, the, the reality that God is one God and three persons, uh, the reality that man has a sin nature right, and needs to be redeemed. These things are central. We're going to talk more about it in a minute. And then we kind of go beyond that to things that we would call secondary, though important, issues. These are issues like that only men can be pastors, right? It's really important, actually. I don't think people understand how important it is that we affirm that 
hey, God has designed in the created order for men to be heads of their households, right? It's a pretty big thing. But I recognize that there are people who are Christians that disagree on that. They're wrong. They're in error. They're still a believer, right? There are people who uh, they believe that we should sprinkle babies to be baptized. And I would say, hey, that's, that's actually maybe on a third level issue even. I would say, but this is a faithful brother in Christ, right? Um, so we recognize there are things that are secondary issues. They're still important. But you can be wrong on it and still be a believer. I'm just defining terms here. This is, again, introduction. And then we have issues that are non-essential. Well, what might be a, a non-essential issue? Music. Musical styles, right? Things like that. Musical styles, whether you meet in a winery or in a house or in a regular church building, non-essentials, all right? So we're putting this in, we're just framing some things here. Don't worry. We're going to get to 2 Peter 2 in a minute. Um, I also want to point out something else. What we've noticed is that by God's grace, a lot of the big doctrinal issues that happened already got dealt with very early on in the first few hundred years of Christianity. And what we noticed, and this is important for right now, is what would happen is a false teaching would come up. As that false teaching would come up, there would be apologetics to respond to it. And so you've noticed then that you know somebody, somebody would come along and say something false. Uh, you would have like this guy Arius in the early fourth century try to say that Jesus wasn't God. Well, we can trace back. We always believe Jesus was God. It's early in Scripture. In fact, it's in these pretextual phrases that were being said even before we had it all written down in Scripture. And we're like, well, we always believe Jesus is God. But we hadn't really worked out, well, what does it mean that Jesus, that there is one God, and yet we see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? We need some good language for that, right? And so what happened is you had false teaching came about. There was apologetics to fix the problem. And then out of that, we said, here is this doctrinal statement that clarifies what we believe. It was like a codifying what we already believed. And that's how we got the doctrine uh, that comes of the Trinity that comes out of the Nicene Council. If you don't know what that is, that's okay. But something to keep in mind, false teaching pops up. It's about stuff we already believed. And so we respond with apologetics. And then we come out of it with good doctrinal language. This seems to be the pattern through church history. This encourages us because it means that whatever false teaching might pop up right now, it's probably already been dealt with. We probably already have some creed or council that addressed it. And beyond that, it's usually already been directly addressed in scripture. The creeds and confessions are simply these statements that simplify what is already believed. So very quickly then, I want to I describe where we get these creeds. So I'm just recognizing that in a lot of evangelicalism, we haven't talked about church history enough. And I don't want to get too, if we're not careful, we get too caught up in church history. And then before you know it, you're doing Roman Catholic-y stuff. But can I just say, church history is a good thing, right? And in its proper place, tradition is a good thing. And I want you to note something in here. We have several creeds that came up early on in Christianity. The first one was that Jesus is Lord. We see it like this is what they were saying right as Jesus was risen from the dead. It's like, he's God, you guys. He rose from the dead. This is Je Jesus is Lord, meaning like he's God Lord. He's not just in charge of us. He's in charge of everything, uh, which is this is a big deal. And so you see the early Christians, we see it in scripture. We see it written down or we see it talked about before scripture was written in the New Testament. This is itself a creed, the phrase that Jesus is Lord. We go on, we see these old, early creeds that later got written down in scripture. 
Things like Philippians 2, this whole he, he descended and ascended language, it's written in kind of this poetic form that indicates that that was something that was being taught before Paul actually wrote it in Philippians 2. We see it again in Romans 10, 9 and 10, where the gospel, and he actually says, the word is near to you, which you've heard this whole, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is the Lord, and believe in your heart, God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. As we understand, that was talked about before Paul wrote it down. It's even clearer in 1 Corinthians 15, when he says, I delivered to you what I also received, that Christ uh, died for our sins, that he was buried, he was risen from the third day. The idea there is Paul is saying, this was given to me. So not only was it believed before Paul wrote it down, but probably before Paul was a Christian. And so we would say these are these early, old, even pre-New Testament creeds. And you see, this has been a thing for a long time. We've clarified what we believed to make sure that there was no misunderstanding. We can go on with what we call the old Roman creed. You know, when we say, uh, what do we believe by true faith? And we say we believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and maker of earth and in Jesus Christ. The prototype language for that is in what we call the old Roman creed that we see show up in the 100s AD. We're talking about as little as less than 100 years after Jesus ascended into heaven, that phrasing was being used. So does it make sense then that when we say something like that, every not every Sunday, but nearly every Sunday, that there's something kind of cool about the fact that people who were alive in the time of Christ probably said that same phrase, although not in English, probably not the same, but pretty doggone close to it. What does that say about our faith? It's really old, in a good way. More on that later. I did it. But I'm, I, I will come back to it later. We also have the Apostles' Creed, which is probably uh, comes along a little while later, is a, a redef- you know, honing the language of the old Roman Creed, and the, the Apostles' Creed is what we actually say most of the time. And then we have the Nicene Creed. This is where we sat down and worked through the Trinitarian language. And then the 400s, we have the Chalcedonian Creed, because somebody was like, well, wait a minute, Jesus is fully God and fully man. Does that mean that he's two persons? How does this all work? And we worked through this like one person, two natures, really good language there. But can I just say, that's really early on, right? This is just, within a few hundred years, we have clear language on these very complicated doctrines. And Christians throughout the whole world were agreeing on these things. Kind of cool, right? And that we affirm these things. Can I maybe just say, when we start talking about potential false doctrine coming up, having a clear language of these early creeds really helps us. Because the apologetics legwork was already done for us. If you, if you take time to really study them and you see here's where they're actually citing scripture on each of these, each of these statements, it's helpful. This is a really long introduction, but I promise it's going to be worth it. All right, the other thing we see is we know that in the 1500s or so, 1400s, the Roman Catholic Church went completely off the, I shouldn't say completely, but nearly completely off the rails, began denying or obscuring key doctrines related to the word of God, began charging money for indulgences to try to buy your way out of purgatory. That's a re- Guys, this was really bad. Even Roman Catholics today will also often say that, yeah, yeah, that we were way off the rails. And so we had the Reformation comes along, and the Reformation says, whoa, 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 we got to get back to what does the word of God say? And then what is the main point? Well, the main point is the gospel, that Jesus died for your sins, you don't earn it, if you are saved, it's going to manifest in good works, but you do not earn your salvation. 
And so we see out of it comes all these confessions of faith. And can I tell you, we have things like the Augsburg Confession, the Belgic Confession, Articles of Religion, Canons of Dort, which is the nerdiest sounding one, but whatever, it's cool. And then you have Westminster Confession of Faith and London Baptist Confession, which by the way, we hold to the London Baptist Confession. Can I tell you something really cool? If you look at all these confessions of faith, they line up pretty good. One of them might emphasize one thing more than another or another thing, but there's great agreement. And so have you all heard this thing where they're like, oh, these denominations and they're all, we need to get rid of the denominations because they're just warring all the time. You know what? I, I have not been in a fist fight with somebody who believes the Westminster Confession of Faith. Never happened. In fact, um, I've never been in a, in, a, in a fight with anybody who believes the canons of Dort. In fact, more than that, even though we affirm the London Baptist Confession, pretty much all of these confessions affirm the essentials of the faith. They affirm orthodoxy. Many of them, because of what they were dealing with in their region, address some key things related to error that was popping up around there. But can I tell you, when I find out somebody affirms the Westminster Confession, I'm encouraged. And I'm like, you guys might be wrong about sprinkling babies, but man, you're my brother in Christ. You guys understand how there's a value, first of all, the old creeds that we should all agree on, but then even having a confession of faith where I might differ with someone, I actually get to say, ah, but I know where you stand, and on the essentials, we're good. You guys with me on this? You understand? This is a lot of intro. Yeah? Would you talk briefly about the New City Catechism? Yes. Ooh. Uh, more on that later. <laughs> no, but I can say, we, and we're going to talk about, we really are going to talk about this later, but we are a confessional church. And a confessional church means that we have a statement of faith or a confession that we hold to, and we actually respond, we actually teach on it. So the, the, um, the New City Catechism that we use is based on the Westminster Confession of Faith, but it is kind of a, I don't want to say generic, but it is, it's taken out some of the things that are very, very specific to Westminster. And so those of us who hold the London Baptist Confession can say, these things match up really well. And so our, it's because it's a free app and it's accurate, we use that to be a confessional church. And so we are regularly quoting from that because it's directly referencing this statement of faith that we hold to. This is what we call being a confessional church. It means that we hold to this confession and we actually teach on it and remember it. And this is how we teach doctrine to our kids. You guys, the fact that we have little ones that we say, hey, how can we be saved? And they say, only by faith in Jesus Christ. You know what that means? That means this whole thing about worshiping, worship from other religions ruled out and our kids understand that. Only by faith in Jesus Christ and what? His substitutionary atoning death on the cross. That means it's not just that he was an example for us. No, no, no. He died an atoning death, and we teach that to our kids. Okay, this is a long introduction, but it's important. Do you guys understand how these things work together then? So when we talk about biblical orthodoxy, you might notice that when somebody talks about the essentials of the faith, they might not have the exact same list every time. You might have someone that affirms the five fundamentals, well, not five fundamentals, the, uh, the five solas that... Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, according to Scripture alone. That's affirming some key things. It's according to the authority of Scripture, that God alone receives glory. Christ alone is our sacrifice. Grace and not merit. Faith and not works. That's pretty good. We would say, yeah, man, those are the essentials of the faith. No problem. But then, and I would say that comes out of the Reformation, what we call the five solas. But then during, say, the, I don't know, the 
mid-early 1900s in, in the United States, there was a lot of really liberal error coming up that was denying some key things. And so some guys got together and they came up with what we call the five fundamentals of the faith. That Jesus is God, the deity of Christ. That he was born of a virgin. Why do you think they threw that one in there? Why do you think they threw in the virgin birth of Christ? What's that? It's because it was being attacked, and it's critical to the doctrine of the deity of Christ. My personal opinion, I would have made it a sub-point under number one, and we'd have only had four fundamentals, but it's still really important. What was happening is that particular doctrine was being attacked, and just like the old creeds and confessions, they said, we got to get this in here, you guys, and so they brought emphasis on it. Uh, we see the atonement, the bodily resurrection of Christ. You know why that was important? Because people were saying, oh, Jesus just kind of rose spiritually in your heart. And it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. No, we've always believed that he rose bodily. That's really important. If he just rose, then he's just a ghost. Or some people are like, oh, he just rose into the proclamation of the gospel. And the gospel is really about your self-realization. It's like, no. Notice how what they'll do, what false teaching does, is it takes something we've always believed, it strips it of what is really in it, and then they'll say the same things, use the same language, and when you challenge them, you're like, oh, no, this is what we've always believed. No. We believe that Jesus rose from the dead bodily. And so the fundamentalists, and then they get to the inerrancy of scripture because people are like, oh, you know, it's a big mess. No, it's not. The five fundamentals of the faith are a really helpful thing. And can you just notice that they might not emphasize the same things, but they are pretty much dealing with the same stuff as the five solas. Now when you talk to a lot of evangelicals, orthodox ones, they talk about the essentials of the faith. They'll talk about deity of Christ, salvation by grace alone salvation in Christ alone, bodily resurrection, the gospel, the fact that we believe in monotheism and also believe in the Trinity. Can you see how like there's different emphases? But the essentials of the faith, there's always been this consistency. Does this make sense? Cool? All right. I know this is a lot of intro, but this is important. We're going to get somewhere with this. Um, here's the other thing that's happening right now. All of this helps us get us to where we need to talk about. We are in a time where people are trying to say, well, what is the minimum that someone can believe and still be a Christian? Uh, we'll call it minimal orthodoxy, right? And so as people are denying key things, they're denying the deity of Christ and whatever, and they'll say, oh, they still believe in the teachings of Jesus. Can't we still say they're a Christian? Right? Are you guys hearing these kind of things? Even guys who are evangelical leaders, even some of those, whatever, 39% of pastors that are denying a biblical worldview, they're writing books. And you have guys like Andy Stanley saying, well, the Old Testament isn't really true. right? And, and it's, it's not really important that we believe Jesus is the only way to salvation. That's heresy. Yep. right? And so they're trying to say, what, how can we just kind of loosey-goosey things so we can call the most people Christians? Minimal orthodoxy. Now I can say, there's a part of me that says, I should kind of identify what are the essentials so I can say, well, hey, this guy's my brother, even if he's wrong on other stuff, and this guy might not actually be my brother. It's okay to, uh, to say, what really are the minimals? There seems to be an effort to try to strip away as much as possible so we can diffuse faithful orthodoxy. And can I just say, that is against the spirit of what we would call faithful Christianity. The tagline of the Reformation was Semper Reformanda. And I know some of you guys know what Semper means, right? The idea is we are always reforming. And so in the Reformation, it's like, well, we have all these commands that we're going to be formed in the image of Christ, that we're to be transformed by the renewing of our own minds, that we're to know the truth, the truth is going to set us free, we're supposed to teach doctrine. We should be seeking to be as in as we can be, not to figure out what is the absolute edge of faith and let's stand over there. 
had a teacher that used the illustration. He's like, let's imagine we, we're at a gymnasium and it's time for phys ed. And I say, oh, all right, kids, let's do jumping jacks. Don't do them right now. This is an illustration. And so some of the kids come to center court and they start doing jumping jacks. They got plenty of room. We have, you know, a wonderful, like, air-conditioned, uh, you know, gymnasium. And so everybody who's in the middle of the room, they're doing fine, doing their jumping jacks, right? And then some kids are like, I don't want to stand over there. I, I kind of like it on the edge. And so they go all the way to the edge of the room, and they start doing jumping jacks till their hands are whacking the wall, their feet are scuffing the sides, and they're like, I can't believe Mr. Sands is making me do jumping jacks. There's not even room to do jumping jacks here because I'm right on the edge and I'm rocking into anything. And then you have some that are like, why do I have to be in the gymnasium? In fact, I only have to be in the gymnasium. How about we open up these big double doors, and I'm going to stand right in the middle, and I'm going to be in the gymnasium, right? Because every time, I mean, like, I got one foot in, and I'm doing my jumping jacks, but man, it's so hot outside, right? And I'm getting so warm. Why is Mr. Sam's making me do these jumping jacks when I, look at all, I mean, it's hot outside, it's cold inside, this, this is terrible. And you might have some other kids that are like, gymnasium, why do I, like, all he said was to do jumping jacks. So technically, I could do jumping jacks in the parking lot. So they go out and stand out on the, the hot asphalt, and they do jumping jacks until they pass out. And everybody's complaining. When Guess what? The kids who were seeking to be in the middle of center court weren't even risking being outside. Now we understand here, the concept of semper reformanda is where I say, what does God's word say? And it's where I say, you know, I recognize that every one of us has some false doctrine that needs to be corrected, and that no matter what, I'm never going to be perfect. But if I am seeking to be in the center of God's commands in accordance with what he has said, I am going to be safe there. And if I'm a little bit off, it means, okay, I'm a little bit to one side of the court or the other. It doesn't mean I'm outside. Make sense? All right, so let's get into the nitty-gritty. All right, Romans 10, we already talked about this. In Romans 10, uh, 9 through 11, we have what is very simply the most basic of gospel presentations, where he says, what does it say? The word is near to you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Gospel. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is really simple, you guys. I don't think there is a more simple gospel presentation. Believe in what he has done. Confess him as Lord. You are in. It does not say anything about believing in the nuances of the Trinity or believing in the authority of Scripture. I think it has to come soon after, but can we just acknowledge it says, you believe this, you're saved. So if we can kind of look at this little diagram here, let's imagine right in the center we have the cross representing the gospel, and this is like, if you don't believe this, you're not a Christian at all. Cool? Yeah. Troubling that so many are denying the deity of Christ, it is part of the gospel. You cannot believe the gospel without believing. I mean, it's right in there. Declare him Lord. Simple as can be. All right, so the next kind of, we'll say, concentric circle, it's not even a circle, but what kind of is so infused in the gospel that you can't even separate it is what we would call orthodoxy. When we say the word doctrine, it means teaching. Important thing. And when we say orthodoxy, it means those things that are essential to the faith. It simply, the word actually means right teaching. That's orthodoxy. So when you hear me say orthodoxy versus heresy, we're talking about right teaching versus false teaching. Cool? Orthodoxy. So 
God speaks to this. The essentials of the Christian faith cannot be denied if you are going to remain a true Christian. Again, I don't expect you to know all these things at the moment of conversion, but you better not deny them after. Uh, so, in, uh, let's see, 1 Timothy 4.16, it says, Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, as far, uh, for as you do, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and those who hear you. Timothy is the pastor of his church. Paul is saying, pay careful attention, make sure you're teaching good doctrine. It protects you and the people that you are teaching. It's almost like that illustration of stay in the center of the gymnasium. Work to get everybody as close as you can to the center of the gymnasium so that your teaching is on. And so if you're a little bit off, you're not way off. All right. Uh, 2 John 1.10, it says, anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. Anyone comes, if, uh, anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him in your house and do not give him a greeting. Uh, the context of 2 John is that there were people going around denying that Jesus had actually become fully man as he was also fully God. Uh, we believe it was kind of a proto-Gnosticism that was going on there. If you don't know what that is, that's okay. Essentially, they're denying that Jesus was fully God and fully man. This is one of those key important doctrines that are within orthodoxy. And so what does John say? The apostle John, the guy who is maybe the closest to Jesus, he says, don't even let those clowns in your house because they are teaching a doctrine that is actually running you out of the faith. As a little side note, this is why I am cordial to Jehovah's Witnesses, but I don't greet them and wish them a good day. I'm, I think the whole issue is like, don't help them, right? But I'm like, you guys, repent and believe the real gospel. Anyway, continuing on. We also see in 2 Timothy 1.13, remain or retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love, in the, in, in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Notice there's this emphasis. Get your doctrine right, Timothy. Get your doctrine right, Titus. Second John is saying to an entire church, guys, don't even let these guys that are teaching error, and they, you, these same people that would come by and say, you need to believe in Jesus. You need to believe the gospel. But they mean something entirely different. Can I tell you, this is why like a Mormon can tell you the gospel message. And you'll be like, wow, that's, that sounds, sounds really good. This guy sounds really right. And then when you start understanding, wait a minute, their definition of who God is, they don't believe that God is eternal. They believe that he used to be a regular guy on some other planet. Now he has his own planet. Certainly that's denying the immutability of God. That's denying the immortality, or yes, the immortality, uh, the immutability, the eternality of God. And so brothers and sisters, can we see that the second level this orthodoxy is so important, and scripture is even addressing some of these things. Like, don't let somebody show up saying the gospel and mean these other things. Cool? You guys are with me. All right. Something that should go without saying for us, but our source for doctrine is scripture itself. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, it says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for preaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be completely equipped for every good work. So a little side note, does completely equipped by scripture mean that you're not completely equipped? That's a really rhetorical, basic, even silly question. Of course not. It means that everything I need, this is the doctrine of sufficiency, everything I need 
to be completely mature, completely equipped in the faith is in scripture. I do not need an additional source. I don't have to have somebody coming along that has some special revelation for me that says, here's the thing that unlocks all of scripture and only I have it. I've got everything I need in scripture, you guys. Um, this is important. Uh, so another thing, I recognize that like this is not one of those things where I'm giving you this like cool, logical, we're just addressing some key things here, right? It might not flow as we might expect. But can we just quickly also discern two different things? There is what we would call error, that is something that is wrong, and then we have what we call heresy, and that's something that is both wrong and affects your salvation. Error, I know I already used this illustration, I don't mean to beat a dead horse, but error is when somebody believes that a woman can be a pastor. Scripture is really clear. 1 Timothy 2 says that that's not supposed to happen. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14, uh, Ephesians 5. We can go to a lot of passages that say women aren't supposed to be pastors. If someone believes a woman can be pastor, that is error. Does it affect our doctrine of the Trinity or the deity of Christ? No. Does it affect the authority of Scripture? You're getting risky on it. But it doesn't necessarily. So I would say to somebody like that, like, you're in error. You could still be a brother in Christ, right? I know people that believe women can be pastors, and I'm like, you are wrong. I'm pretty sure you're still my brother in Christ. But you better be real careful, because the hermeneutic you are using is going to get you in big trouble really quick. So can we understand that's error? It's not heresy. Heresy is that thing that absolutely puts you outside the faith. The Jehovah's Witnesses will go around and will say some really great sounding things. Talk about how important Jesus is and they deny that he's fully God or really God at all. Um, which leads to a works-based salvation. Can I just say, that's heresy. The Mormons, as we've already mentioned similarly, will come around, they'll say, really, man, the gospel they present sounds so good until you understand that they're not talking about an actual God. And then very quickly it jumps over into this works-based salvation. And I just tell you, that's heresy. We will not see them in heaven unless they repent and believe. Anyway, so can we understand we're, we're drawing these distinctions? So if we're going to look at kind of this diagram again, we see where we have the gospel at the center. We have orthodoxy that's so key to the gospel that you can't really separate it. And then we have these things that are really important, things like only men can be pastors. And um, I don't know, we could go into a whole lot of things that are really, really important. You can still be saved and disagree on them, but you're, you're in danger. And then kind of beyond that, we have these things that are secondary but important issues. An example of this might actually be like infant baptism versus belief baptism. I think it's pretty important, but I'm just going to acknowledge when a Presbyterian baptizes his kid, he understands that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. And I might say, I don't think you're doing the right thing there, but you're my brother in Christ. And this goes into that kind of secondary, like, I don't think this is an issue where I should say, you Presbyterians are not even saved. Can we understand the difference? Whereas if somebody comes along and denies that Jesus is God, I'm like, you're not a Christian. You guys see, d dividing these lines properly is really important. Yeah? What if somebody says that the baptism saves them? That's a big problem. Because the thief on the cross, it was by the declaration of Christ and faith that the thief on the cross was saved. So if we say that baptism is essential for salvation or you're not saved, that sounds a lot like saying that salvation is not by faith alone through grace alone. And I would say, like, you're in pretty serious error. I will say, oh, let's, I want to hear what they mean. I'll say, it gets a little tricky. You know the Duck Dynasty guys? They believe that. 
they believe that you got to get dunked underwater or you're not safe. Well, these are nice guys. I want to believe those guys are brothers in Christ. Would they probably say that salvation was by faith alone? They'd probably agree. And they're like, but you got to get dunked underwater. I would say like, well, you shouldn't get dunked underwater, but gotta? Like a guy like that, I'm like, you're right on the edge, man. Like, I would really want to work through some of that, right? I'd be, I would say that's pretty serious. I would say that's serious error, maybe heresy, <laughs> right? That's pretty serious error. Um, so yeah, I would say, don't believe that. Um, and I would really challenge them. Yes, honey. That's okay. No, this is, this is a good question. So the issue comes up, and this is kind of what we wanted to get to. Um, we are going to have more on this later. But, but the question of, like, what do I do, for instance, um, when a Joshua Harris, you guys know, Joshua Harris wrote a book called A Kiss Dating Goodbye that had some pretty good principles about purity and about saving yourself from marriage and, and praise the Lord. And then later on, when there was a lot of error going on in during the whole emergent church thing, he said, no, 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 we're going to stand with orthodoxy. And then a couple of years later, he completely abandoned the faith. So when we look back at some of his books, I can say, well, he wrote some things that were true. I, I don't want to say, I don't want to say like, everything he wrote was wrong. Well, no, he actually wrote some things that were pretty all right before. We would maybe say the same thing. Ooh, this gets tricky. G.K. Chesterton, brothers and sisters. I look at G.K. Chesterton and I'm like, this guy was good. He's really, really good. And then later becomes a Roman Catholic. Gets real tricky on his faith. I'm like, do you believe that salvation is by works now, man? I'm like, ooh, I don't know. So I, I, I would still, I still read G.K. Chesterton's Orthodoxy and I say it's really good. But I'm really worried about what happened to where, where did he land on some of these important things later on? So I would say, we want to be cautious. And this whole kind of like canceling becomes dangerous. But warning, we're going to get to this in a later, warning and at times avoiding does become a necessity. So anyway, uh -huh, continuing on. So we've already talked about just kind of error as opposed to heresy. But Christians at times, we recognize, believe error that is not heresy, though it's still false. Um, and we see in 2 Timothy 3 that we're to correct at times. And so if I find a brother who is in error, I am to correct him, right? I'm to preach the word and be ready in season and out of season. And then it actually says, reprove, this is 2 Timothy 4, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. That I should recognize that I'm going to have brothers and sisters in Christ that are wrong about something, and that I should be patient as I teach the word and try to bring them into con correction. Like, I, think, I think this kind of makes a case for what Christy was saying, that like, at times somebody is in error, they've written some good things, if they've got not actually gone into full-on heresy, I probably shouldn't just cancel them, right? But I might be really, really cautious, and I might say, dude, you need to get that together, man. Um, yes? Costi Hinn, who is the nephew of Benny Hinn, he was talking about early on, he'd be like, you're a heretic, you're a heretic, and he drove away like a lot of his family members. And they're 
relationship was destroyed. Now he's like, he's being very, what this is talking about, Timothy. Yeah. Patient, like, I gotta be careful of how I'm talking about. Yes. Well, the word says with gentleness and respect. Um, Which I have that in here later. More on that later. (laughs) I'm gonna make fun of myself so I quit saying that phrase all the time. Um, Other passages we see here. In Job 5:17, it says, Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves, therefore despise not the discipline of the Almighty. The implication here is that God reproves you. You can be wrong. You can be even in error, either in sin or in error, and that you can be rebuked, you, rebuked, rebuked and be brought back into correct faith and correct living. So we should acknowledge that if someone is in error, it doesn't necessarily yet mean that they are an unbelieving heretic it might mean that they just need to be corrected. And I have noticed, I have to say, that sometimes rebuke doesn't happen in a moment. We rebuke, we talk to them, and sometimes it takes them a little while to come around, but then they do. And then others, the opposite happens. We also see Proverbs 10:17. whoever heeds instruction is on the path of life, but he who rejects reproof leads others astray. Oh, that was I thought that was a kid beeping. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. and sisters, you all familiar with this, that Ravi Zacharias was a well-known Christian apologist who, I, I will say, might not have been my favorite, but I liked him and I was glad he was defending the faith and was accused of things before his death. And then after his death, he was accused of even more. And it's, the evidence is pretty strong that Ravi Zacharias was in some pretty serious sin. We don't know, and he didn't have the chance really to respond while he was alive to most of it. But Calls into question a lot, doesn't it? So then the question is like, should I burn my Ravi Zacharias books? Yeah? So uh, I, 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 I've thought a lot about this because, um, you know, not, not a lot of, uh, maybe one day I'll, I'll, I'll share more detail, but um, uh, in May of 2006, uh, a neighbor uh, came onto my family's uh, family farm and shot me and my mom and dad. And my parents didn't make it, I did. But, um, uh, I would say roughly almost a year before that, I had read a Ravi Zacharias book that dealt with, you know, just um, the topic of the book was, you know, if God is so loving, how, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? So, you know, so I, and, and, you know, so I read this book on that topic almost a year before, you know, this thing happened to me and my family. And the thing is, is that, you know, Ravi's book helped me through this situation, because my parents were believers, we love the Lord, you know, and it's, and then, you know, this happened, but, you know, it was, you know, it, it, was, it was Robbie's book that, you know, made an impact, and yeah. so when all these things came out about Robbie, yeah, it, it was a punch in the gut, and it made me question, I'm like, well, should I, you know, should I keep this book in my library, and I, it's still in my library, because, you know, even though... Robbie, character-wise, all these things have come out. I mean, you know, what what he wrote was, I mean, those are, you know, it's it's Bible teaching. It's you know, it, it's it's encouraging. It you know, it's it helped me through, you know, you know, 
through, through a time when, yeah, there are times it's like, God, why, why did this happen to me and my mom and dad? Yeah. Could we maybe acknowledge something? In so much that a teaching aligns with scripture, it is true, regardless of from whom it comes from or what other error or practice they might be practicing. And that might be, make me very cautious about how I recommend books. In fact, I've probably been too cautious at times, but I have to acknowledge that this is one of the beauties of the word of God. You can be in error and a whole bunch of other things. And like even here, I can teach, and if I, the more I keep it to the word of God, the less likelihood I have of getting into any trouble. And if for some reason I fell into error or sin, you don't have to say everything Dan said was false. Praying that that never happens, by the way. You can say like, man, this is, this is where it says scripture and scripture says this. I do need to move us along because we haven't even gotten to Second Peter yet. Anyway, uh, so very quickly, we just acknowledge uh, that there is error, uh, we would call heterodoxy, and then there is heresy. We've already talked about these things. Uh, I'll just move us on. We're going to skip a couple of slides here. Um, I want to talk about some very quickly some characteristics of false teachers. Uh, some things we see in First and Second Timothy two, we see that false teachers suit the passions of the people who resist sound doctrine. It says that for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves false teachers. The idea is people don't want to believe the truth, so they go and find false teachers. This is how false teachers come into prominence, is because somebody wants to listen to them. This is an important thing. Typically, the person wanting false teaching comes first, and the false teacher comes after, and he gains prominence because there are people who are already seeking to deny Scripture. Right? Second, they twist Scripture. Second Peter 3:16. Paul writing, or I'm sorry, Peter writing of Paul's writing says, "People are twisting him, just like they do other Scripture." We recognize that this is one of the things that happen. We also see that they disguise themselves, but can be known for their their fruit. Matthew 7, 5 says, Beware the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Can we say? There is fruit that comes from certain teaching. Right? Um, If I am teaching that man is to lead his house, that he is to provide for his wife, he's to live with her in an understanding way, he's to raise his children to follow Christ, can you imagine if that guy is doing those things, that there is fruit that's going to come out of that? He's going to build up Christ's kingdom. He's going to disciple his children. His wife is going to thrive because he's leading her, but it's in an understanding way. Can we understand that there's good fruit that comes from that? Whereas if I teach that like, oh, man's not supposed to lead and that's just chauvinism and it's sinful and blah, 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 and then there's not order in the home, can we see that there's fruit that comes from that? Anyway, let's get to 2 Peter chapter 2. Thank you guys. It says, uh, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who taught them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. It doesn't mean immediate destruction. It means when the destruction comes, it will be fast. It says, and many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to the chaos of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, 
when he brought a flood upon the earth of the uh, upon the world of the ungodly if by burning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes he condemned them to extinction making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly and if he rescued righteous Lot greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked for as uh, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard by the way, as a side note, if you are tormented by the unrighteous deeds of what's happening in the world right now, praise God. That's a good sign. Um, anyway, it says, then, let the Lord, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. By the way, the message here is God will judge the wicked false teachers and he will rescue his faithful. That's good news. But there are a few characteristics of false teachers he mentions here. He mentions that they are sensual, uh, and I would say typically that refers to sexually immoral, but it is not limited to that. It means they like sensual pleasures, right? They are greedy, and they are deceptive. Can we just say, we can probably think right now of some preachers on TV that already fit these things pretty good. Sensual desires, they like to have a lot of free stuff, right? They're greedy. It's always about money. And they're deceptive. They get real shady on their twisting of scripture. Second Peter 2 continues. He says, bold and willful. They do not tremble as they, uh, as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters that they are ignorant will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they, while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Wow. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Bear who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs. Think about that language. The place you were supposed to get sustenance from has nothing. And mist driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud and bo loud boasts of folly, they entice sensual, enticed by sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in, the, in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them to have never known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to his own vomit and the sow after washing herself returns to wallow in the mire. Can I say, like, this is really serious stuff against false teachers. Serious stuff that, by the way, needs to be spoken of false teachers but only of false teachers. A couple of other characteristics here that come up here. It says they're loud, boastful, willful. They're often irrational. 
and they are ignorant. And I just tell you, as a guy who studies theology, it's really annoying when some guy who's got a TV program says ridiculous stuff, and I'm like, oh, anyway. Um, I have a few questions on here that are helpful for, helpful for discerning. Um, we're just going to move past it. You can, oh, those are in the notes. Um, so a couple of things we're supposed to do when we're responding to false doctrine. 2 Timothy 3.16 says we're to reprove and correct. That's step one, generally. We look on down, another response is to expose false teaching. Ephesians 5.11 says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. We have several other passages here. This is why, if it is actual false teaching, I am to expose it. I'm not supposed to be like, you know, I heard that this guy said this, but I'm not going to say anything. No, no, no. If it's error, expose it. If it's heresy, expose it. Gentleness and love, but it should be exposed. Um, For their sake as well as yours. We're to give an answer. Uh, we see in 1 Peter 3:15, it says, "But in your, uh, but in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord. The Lord is Almighty. Always being prepared to make a defense for anyone who asks for you a reason for the hope that is in you. Do it with gentleness and respect." This is where we talked about how apologetics precedes theology. By God's grace, look at some of the old creeds and confessions; they're helpful. Or I'm going to recommend a couple of apologetics books later. Number four, another response. It says, "We're to mark and avoid." Romans 16, 17 says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. So there are times where we are to avoid those who are teaching false doctrine. If it's false, like, doctrinal heresy problems. It's not just that, like, this guy believes in sprinkling babies. Never talking to him again, right? There should, we recognize that the line is different for actual heresy. Uh, or maybe even for the guy who says something that he didn't know quite what he was saying, and you kind of go and correct and say, man, that's not how it works. Um, I've heard some people say, well, we don't believe Jesus is God. He's the Son of God. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a minute. No, he's fully God, fully man, like Son of God. And I'm, I just describe it a little bit. That person who, res- who accepts that correction, brother in Christ. Yes. Well, a great example. Um, Trailer comes out for The Chosen season three. And there's this quote in it where Jesus says, I am the law of Moses, which is in the Book of Mormon. And so there was a whole firestorm of people saying, what? Like, they're teaching Mormon doctrine or whatever. And you hear the response. And by the way, I would say they shouldn't have put that in there. Right? But we can see Charles Spurgeon once said, Jesus Christ is the embodiment of the law of Moses in the sense that like he obeyed the law of God perfectly. Praise the Lord. But if you put words in Jesus' mouth, it's like, oh, oh Dallas Jenkins, what were you thinking, man? Uh, can we just acknowledge, like, yeah, that was a mistake. But I don't think Dallas Jenkins is trying to get us to believe in Mormonism. And I might, by the way, I'm, I would be really cautious. Like, I feel like they're doing some things with the chosen that it's like, hey, you're getting a little loose with some things. But I'm, I'm not going to assume that that guy's going to hell. Like, I think Dallas Jenkins is my brother in Christ. Can we just see? That's probably one of But we heard that little snippet, and there was a big fight going on on the internet. And I will just acknowledge us Calvinists like to fight. We do. And so we find out about somebody selling something that's not exactly right, and we're like, we'll punch you in the face with the gospel. And then it's like, We should have been nicer. Anyway, finishing up here. Um, 
Here's the thing. Galatians 1, 16 through 9. Notice this. There is a time when the line is supposed to be clear. Paul says this. He's writing to the church at Galatia. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. It's like the issue here is you're turning to another gospel. That's a problem. This is not that there is another gospel. There are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say, as anyone, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that is received, let him be accursed. By the way, it, that's not, in English it doesn't come off strong enough. He's saying damnation to the guy who teaches the false gospel. Can we just acknowledge that like there is that line that does come up and it's a serious one. And if somebody is coming teaching a false doctrine, that we're like, we've rebuked. We've tried to get you to make a change. We've exposed. We've done all this. And there is a line where we say, to hell with you. Please repent. Please come back. But if not, this is this is where it goes. Anyway, um, we are over time. And so I'm going to finish up. I will just acknowledge that there are those who are going about teaching about new revelations. And they're like, look, it's I'm, a new, I'm an apostle or I'm a prophet. We don't have time to go into great detail. Can I, but can I just say, scripture is sufficient, right? Praise the Lord. In scripture, God even gave us a framework for judging good prophecy. We see in Deuteronomy 13, it says, if the prophet contradicts scripture, ignore him. Um, in some cases, he was to be stoned to death. I'm not saying that you should do that. Um, I do like if somebody says, I have a prophecy. I'm like, cool. So I got these rocks. And if you're wrong, and um, nobody takes me up on that offer. Anyway, I'm like, just stand right here. Um, Here's the other thing. If the prophet ever predicts something wrongly, he's to be ignored, right? Um, interesting. So when somebody like Chris Valentin says, I'm a prophet and I prophesied that this is going to happen, and then it doesn't, it's like, we're never listening to you again, man. Like, this is what we're supposed to, like, God gave us these guidelines. We also see in 1 Corinthians 14, the prophets are submit to the authority of a church and be weighed, right? Can I just say there's a lot of people going around saying there are prophets or apostles that aren't following these things and are thus false prophets, whole other question as to whether or not prophecy is even for today. That's a bigger topic. Anyway, as we close out, I can say um, some, just to be careful, there are those who are like, well, then we shouldn't believe in science because it's not in the Bible, right? I just need to acknowledge, um, we see the concept from Augustine of what we call plundering Egyptians, where it's like, you know, if it is something that is true and doesn't contradict scripture, it's God's truth. In fact, that means they're the ones that it doesn't belong to. It belongs to us. No time to go into great detail on that. Um, we already talked about how our church is confessional. We hold to a doctrine. We teach on it. Um, and I will just recommend some reading. Thank you all for being patient as I went way over today. Um, I'm going to recommend, if you don't read anything else other than scripture, read Expository Apologetics by Vodi Bakum. Answers a lot of these things. Yes? I mean, the, these prophecies are so vague. Yes. So it's always like God's shifting and moving, and He's in the secret place with the heaven. You know, it's, it's just a bunch of mm-hmm. of Christian things, and it's like so. What do you do with that? You, how do you deal with somebody who like 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 eats what they say like candy because? Oh, and I would take rec- directly to Scripture and say we have precedence in Scripture on what prophecy looks like. Agabus is a great example. Agabus was a New Testament prophet gave prophecy that was very clear and accurate. 
Agabus didn't seem to understand what the application should be, but he was, it was specific and accurate. It could be tested. Um, we also believe in the perspicuity of scripture. It means the clarity and understandability of scripture. If someone is getting a word from the Lord that is vague and is unclear, that does not pass the smell test of, of a, a thing that is a word from the Lord. God is clear. So when it's, when it's, have you ever been in a situation like, I don't know if God's leading me to do this or leading me to do that? I'm like, guess what? Then he's not leading you on anything there because you're going to know. Like, and he might not lead. It might just be like, hey, just trust God and do what you think is the right thing to do. But like, if it's from the Lord, it's going to be clear. I mean, as simple as that. Another book I'll recommend is Orthodoxy and Heresy by Joel Parkinson. It gets into the detail of where to draw the lines. It's a really quick read. Great book. Also, London Baptist Confession. It is our confession of faith. Worth knowing. Answers a lot of things. And then Fault Lines. Vody Bauckham gets on here twice because he is kind of the theologian of our day. And um, he's addressing some false teaching that's creeping up right now in the form of critical theory. Fault Lines is a good example of how to deal with some false teaching. You guys, thank you so much for your patience. Christy, you're on for the gospel. Sure. Yeah. So, 